Welcome to Tim Goodman's TV Talk Machine. I'm Tim Goodman, and today we have a very special podcast, a two-part interview with documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, which we hope to turn into four or six parts by the time his latest work, The War, airs on PBS next September. Ken Burns is one of our great American filmmakers. In 1981, his very first film for PBS, Brooklyn Bridge, was nominated for an Academy Award. He has gone on to create a prolific, award-winning career making documentary films for PBS. In 1990, he delivered the first film in his trilogy of Americana, The Civil War. That film changed the way Americans looked at documentaries and gave an enormous boost to PBS by pulling in 40 million viewers. In 1994, he topped himself with his second film in, that, in what would become a trifecta of American history, Baseball, which drew 45 million people to PBS. The last film in that grouping was Jazz in 2001. Other films along the way included The West in 1996, Thomas Jefferson in 1997, Frank Lloyd Wright in 1998, Mark Twain in 2001, and Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson in 2005, in which he won three Emmys. Those are just some of his many films. In September of this year, Burns will be back on PBS with another enormous undertaking. The War is a seven-part, 14-hour examination of World War II. In our podcast interview, Burns will talk about what drew him to another film on war and World War II, one of the most dissected wars in particular. Burns believes that the war is his best work to date. All right, we're here with Ken Burns. 17 years ago, you did the Civil War, which sort of changed the course. Of course, a lot of people will say of how documentary films were perceived in this country. Your latest, The War, will um, be airing September 23rd, 17 years to the moment. To the moment, yeah. So uh, Sunday, September 23rd, I believe at 8 o'clock. At 8 o'clock, yeah. It took us that long to remove the word civil out of it. And uh, that may be a little bit of a hint about what we've done. You know, in the Civil War, when soldiers had seen combat, they said, we'd seen the elephant. It was this phrase, this euphemistic phrase that they'd seen the elephant and... Um, it, it speaks, I think, to the unknowability for everyone else of what combat is like, the notion that at any moment, any moment, your life might end. And that right. the way it transforms you and vivifies your life is very interesting. And I think we've just sort of carried what we learned in the Civil War into, which was our great, great, great grandfathers, into the Second World War, which were, is our fathers mm-hmm. and our grandfathers. Well, you had said uh, after after that, after the Civil War, um, that you would never do another yeah. war film. What, what made you change your mind? Well, first of all, the reason is that I didn't want to be typecast. Um, I didn't also want to exploit it. I mean, after it was out, people just wanted me to do other wars, as right. if that's what you did if you were successful in doing a, a film about war. And I think it's also that we didn't want to revisit that incredibly desperate place uh, at, at the place where combat takes place, where not just human life is lost, but that sense of fear that we felt even at the remove of 150 years or more in the Civil War with still photographs of a different era of people, different dress, and so different. And, and I, I think we just didn't want to go back into that contradictory state of war, not just its chaos, but it's also undeniable attractiveness. I mean, that's part of what beats in the human breast is this interest in war. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but people used to write all the time, you got to do this war, you got to do that war, you please, you got to tell my father's story. It's usually the Second World War. But finally, you know, 
we had to give up. We surrendered because we're losing a thousand veterans a day in mm-hmm. the United States, and our kids think we fought with the Germans against the Russians right. in the Second World War. So I mean, it's sort of like we're sort of sort of dying at both ends, mm-hmm. both literally as we lose this incredible inheritance, the memory of these people who heretofore have been very reticent to speak about it, but now at the end of their lives, compelled by children, by grandchildren, are beginning to open up and share with us what it was really like to be there, and that. That we don't in this culture, which is obsessed in many ways with World War II, it hasn't trickled down to those people for whom it is critical that they know precisely who we fought against. And it's been done so many times we thought we'd do it a different way and try to just honor ordinary experience and just try to answer the question, what was it like to be in that war? Right. When you say ordinary experience, I mean, one of the interesting things that I think uh, about approaching this topic, and I know that you did stay away from it, well, for 17 years. Yeah. Or more, because I know that it took that long to to do the first one, and you're working on this. You're coming up on seven years. Seven years working on this, yeah. Right. Was part of it that it had been done so many times that the the Second World War had been just this touchstone of of filmmakers? I I think so. I've made a lot of films about stuff people didn't really know about before Jack Johnson or or the the Civil War. Even now, it seems funny in retrospect to say baseball, but – but there was, hadn't much been done history-wise on that and, and other things. And so this felt like ground that had already been plowed over. But we also knew that we were so distracted in our studies by the top-down version, by the celebrities of the war, the generals and the field marshals and the presidents and the prime ministers and the Fuhrer and this obsession with uh, everything Nazi and and the distraction of weaponry and tactics and strategies and – it's, to me, there's something universal and very deeply human about what happens when people go to war that, that brings out the best and the worst. And it was important that a war that is becoming sort of calcified, you know, barnacled over with the idea that it was the good war. The Second World War was the worst war. Excuse me. Right. It's right. not the good war. Mm-hmm. Maybe our causes um, – were unambiguous, mm-hmm. and that can be a huge lesson for us. And they were, and our film does not mistake who the bad guys were and who the good guys were. But once it starts, 60 million people died. Yeah. And this is a huge, huge loss of life. And it's important to know what happened and what it was like to be in that war. And so we've told it from the bottom up. You get to know a handful of people from four geographically distributed towns, and they take you on a tour of hell. Uh, and this is you found some people in in these four towns, and one of the towns, Sacramento, which has a large Japanese American population. Yeah, we we basically wanted to go after universal human experiences. Mm-hmm. We weren't interested in being sort of politically correct and covering everybody, but we knew we'd make an exception with Japanese Americans um, who were interned, and then asked in a much uh, less known story after the War Department reversed itself, to serve in combat, to volunteer in combat units to turn out to be the most bravest and most decorated of any regiments in the United States Army. It's an amazing story. Mm -hmm. And death notices are being sent back to... To to internment camps, right. to parents saying, your son, they're under armed guard and their sons have given up their lives for the country. Their sisters are, can't go outside the perimeter of, the, of, of this barbed wire. They'd be shot and yet they're giving up their lives for their country. Um, that needed to be told and to a much lesser extent African-Americans who were forced to serve in segregated armed forces. But we went to these towns, Waterbury, Connecticut, mm-hmm. Mobile, Alabama, Laverne, Minnesota and Sacramento, California to understand how so-called ordinary people experience combat in the war. 
I can imagine that A, staying away from this topic for so long, and then B, coming back to it and approaching it and uh, wanting to tackle it. You couldn't just do it in the way that's been done on the History Channel. And you and I have talked about different ways documentaries are done, and I know that uh, uh, some of your beliefs on so-called documentaries that are, seem to be done in 20 minutes rather than it, five years. And, and I think that we did take this time and mm -hmm. spent nearly seven now trying to craft this. And a lot of this has to do with doing it from the bottom up not paying lip service to the idea of that, but going and learning the towns, learning where people lived. In the opening of the film, we tell you the addresses of some of the people, and two blocks away, somebody else, and their address, and what they did before, and what the country was like. And you get to know the town, you get to know the many characters that stay behind. They're kids mm -hmm. in almost each one of our towns who we follow, and women who have stayed behind, worked in the factories, worried. And that sets up a, a wonderful counterpoint. And then send them into hell and understand what happened, which means you can't just use... You know, in, in our business, we have a term called B-roll, right. which is just the stuff that they play like on the news and they're yakking about Anna Nicole Smith and they run the perpetual loop of the footage of her doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like so much of, of what we use in documentaries about the Second World War or anything is – is sort of B-roll. It's just sort of illustrative. It's just sort of there. It does its job and it's, it's just to keep pictures while somebody's telling you what they already know. But what if, instead of me imposing what I know, what if I got out of the way and I said, let me try to just interweave and braid together the stories of 40 or so people that you get to know like family members or somebody you might have had Thanksgiving with and, and, and put them in the foreground of this larger, huge, cataclysmic struggle of the Second World War and let you figure it out. And in order to do that, you have to make the footage come alive. You have to dive down, spend five years in the National Archives getting the outs. Mm -hmm. And not just the really bad stuff, but sometimes the innocent stuff. Guys giving each other a haircut, you know, in Normandy, uh, you know, wringing out their sh jockey shorts and hanging in mm -hmm. over a line. Mm -hmm. And those quotidian moments that then are punctuated by the sheer moments of terror. And, and then I, that just takes a lot of time. And it, it, it provides not B-roll, but A-roll. Right. And this is a seven-part, 14-hour yeah. documentary. You've uh, you're, you pulled the driver out of the bag on this one. Yeah, yeah, we have indeed. <laughs> um, you know, it's not as long as baseball or jazz, but it's longer than the Civil War. And, you know, we've left so many stories out. In fact, every single episode from the first to the last episode begins with a disclaimer card. And it says, the Second World War was fought in thousands of places, too many for anyone accounting. This is the story of four American towns and how its citizens experienced that war. So then we're liberated. We know we can't tell everything. We can't tell every story. We can't do every group. We can't honor every uh, facet of the war. We can't tell every battle, just as we weren't right. able to do in Civil War and indeed in baseball and jazz. But what we're saying is different from those. It's not top down. These are not the best baseball players. These are not the best jazz players. These are just so-called ordinary folks. And if we follow them, their experience becomes universal. It doesn't matter where they're from or who they are. It is a universal experience. Oh, well, I like the idea of the disclaimer because as you, as you well know, one, you, you pour your life into something, you spend seven years or, or more on something, and then when it gets nitpicked apart by the public or critics, they'll say, well, you left out this part. You can't, you can't oh, tell World War II in 14 hours. You can't tell it in 28 hours. In 1,400 hours, right. you couldn't do it. And, and that's why there's a history channel which is right. attempting to do it, and I don't think doing it that well yet. Right. And I want them to do well. I, I think we have to know about it. Of course... 
and and in the embedded in this is a supreme compliment that if you make something that's 14 and a half hours long and people are telling you what you left out yeah. that's pretty good news right. nobody's saying this is a really boring <laughs> right, film exactly. you didn't do this very well <laughs> they're saying hey you should have talked about my favorite jazz player hey you should have done this um, battle yeah. in the second world war and what it is is i think that we anticipate and welcome the discussion and in fact we knew this, and more than a year ago, we went to PBS and one of its principal funders, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And as we did to a lesser extent in Civil War baseball and jazz, we are encouraging to a huge extent the many systems, uh, many stations in the system, more than 350, the largest right. network on earth, to produce their own local films. Mm -hmm. So it looks like we're going to have dozens, if not well over a hundred separate films from individual community stations sort of offering up a version of what we've done, but in a local sense right. to help take the onus off. You can't be encyclopedic. And the question is, do you want to be the Manhattan phone book or do you want to take a handful of stories and love them and get to do justice to them and understand that they are signal and symbolic and representative of everyone's experience and that after a while all the divisions between people or states or cities or regions or race or whatever it is disappear. These are human experiences. Right. And what's amazing is that the film, as you watch it, resonates with today. Now, this film doesn't have a single political bone in its body. Right. It's not trying to make any political statements. It is just is. But it, in everything, you can't help thinking of Abu Ghraib. You can't help thinking about soldiers complaining about uh, not getting the right equipment. Well, if we were able to bring somebody back from the Peloponnesian Wars, right. you know, and right. they'd say the same thing. You know, they didn't give us the big enough spears. The other guys, they have spears that are eight feet long. So ours are only six. What's up with that? We need better spears. They're not, right. get, you know, or we saw the most horrible thing. I just watched the man, you know, die today, right. my best friend. And this is the arc of what we're trying to accomplish, that kind of universal human experience. Right. Uh, I know that uh, I've seen just a little bit of this now because we're still way ahead of its uh, air date. And I know you don't really like to show it that way because you, you've put yeah. 14 hours into <laughs> yeah. it. And, and there really is an arc. And, and as I watched a lot the other night with you and, and uh, some veterans and other people, KQED supporters, it, you know, it was just, it was just such a – I think you said one-thirtieth of the actual yeah. film. And, and, but you're telling stories literally from the first minute to the last minute in the 14 and a half hours. And you really have to go on that ride is what you're saying yes. to sort of you know, understand the war. You know, I, I, I think that's a hugely important point. We live in a society in which we now think you can get something in two minutes on YouTube and get it and understand right. it. And, and I think that what that signals is the reluctance to embrace narrative. Uh, because we're so busy. But what we end up co uh, collecting is not the things that will help us. Stories help us. We Human beings tell stories. And in fact, when you collect enough stories together, it's called history. Right. Um, we collect stories to heal ourselves, to talk to each other, to create and forge connections, not only between intimates, between loved ones, between our families, but between each other, casual strangers and, and larger communities and countries. And this is how we navigate the absolute terror of human life, which is, I hate to break it to everybody, we're all going to die. Right. And now our consumer culture says, just keep buying. Everything will be all right. Nothing will happen. We'll live forever. And if you do that... You can maybe convince yourself for a while, but it, you know, even Mortality the vicissitudes right. of life will creep into the most carefully planned and orchestrated life. And right. the gated community and that, you know, whatever it is that you've got isn't going to save you from what is going to actually happen. And so we need stories to remind ourselves with humor, with irony, with pathos, with sympathy and compassion for each other 
what happens in the world. Right. And I think that's what we just wanted to do in this and say, just give us those 14 and a half hours of your life. You can spread it over two weeks. You can, you know, I had a friend of mine, I sent an early version of it. He spent all of one day over the weekend, right. hauling it up, crying and weeping. You know, you could, whatever way you want to do it. But if you give it those 14 and a half hours, I promise you, you will be rewarded because you will meet some incredible people that are not too dissimilar from people that you have Thanksgiving with. Right. And they'll change your lives. Well, I definitely want to hammer home this point because I think that uh, it's something that can get lost in this. Because usually the first question is why why World War II and, and why again? Because there, there is so much in World War II. But I want to come back to, to something so people remember. You had said that there's a stat. There's a, we're losing 1,000 veterans a day. A day. Most of the people that you, you know, your films are in their roughly in their 80s, 80s correct? Yeah. And then on the other end of it, we have you know high school students who who's the the history that they're getting in in their class. I mean, that's a whole other thing about American education. But the history that they're getting in their class is it's not sinking in. There's no context. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the greatest of our works about the war. I mean, and I think about Band of Brothers, which right. I think is an amazing series, and Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is one of the particularly that opening sequence is one of the tour de forces of cinematic history. But I always imagine when I started learning these statistics that if you went in and stopped the projector after that landing at D-Day and said, what day is it? Where are we precisely? Mm -hmm. What was the reason for this landing here? What was the consequence of this landing? Who were we fighting with? Who were we fighting against? What were they called? What were we called? A majority of the people in the room wouldn't be able to answer those questions correctly. And then you're really in trouble, which means that, that, that we need to surrender not just to drama, which my film is about as dramatic as it gets. I, I would submit that, that it's as chilling as that opening sequence in places, mm-hmm. um, but it's real. Yeah. And those guys weren't going to craft services at noon to get their lunch. Right. You know, what were, what were you doing when you were 18 and 19 years old? You know, I was, had the luxury of narcissistic inattention. Right. These guys didn't. They were helping to save the world. And well, that's an amazing story. Yeah, it, and it is. And it's, and it's one, I think, one of the dangers of sort of um, living in a world where we have the History Channel on as background wallpaper right. or, you know, or, or we have a certain generation tuning out to the comments of like, oh, it's the greatest generation. You have this kind of people at some point naturally you start to say, well, okay, I've had enough of that. And they're not paying attention. I think what you say about really understanding the facts is important. And one of the things you said last night or the other night, I should say, as a filmmaker, it would be irresponsible of me not to do it. I mean, yes. that must have hit you like, I got to do this. I can't it, avoid it any longer. You know, what happens is, is that you feel this kind of urgency. I don't know what it would be. Maybe a train's coming at you would be a similar sort of thing. If you're losing a thousand veterans a day, that means you have the possibility of your connection to this war in subsequent times being denied. We have to go get them. We have to hear what they say. And we're going to initiate not just other films being made, but oral histories to be collected by families, kids, grandchildren who may not know now that we fought against the Germans and with the Russians in that particular war. But they'll know it by the time they finish talking to grandpa or grandma or great-grandpa or grandma. And that's what we want to do. One one of the things that uh, um, also struck me is from just a little bit that I've seen so far, is that it, it's a little bit shocking in that it's not your typical video. You, you know, there's a sort of sameness to some of the World War II videos that people see over and over again, whether they see it on the History Channel or they just see it on a on a film. There's kind of a sameness to it. I, I didn't get that in any of what I saw. I think of the people who saw it last night were kind of shocked by the, the violence shocked. of it. I, it is a very, very violent film, and um, we were really anxious. And we've had veterans look at it and 
kids from West Point and uh, Naval Academy and and uh, Air Force Academy, and we've had people at probably the opposite end of the political spectrum, and they all say, "Oh, it's so horrible, but don't take out a single dead body." You know, you, it's so important to see this stuff, and I I think it has that kind of just that edge of horror. But it, do, it doesn't step over the line. We're really, really careful. There's nothing gratuitous in this film. It is shocking. And the footage comes to us completely silent. And we finished the film about a year ago, and we've been just doing the sound effects, just building the tracks meticulously and painstakingly with accurate, authentic effects. What does a panzer tank sound like on snow? What's it sound like on macadam? What's it sound like on gravel? What's a 88 sound like? What's the explosion of a grenade? And building our sound effects tracks so painstakingly that footage that you saw, the first scenes of combat that you saw, are actually came to us completely silent. And we turned it into something that rolled the audience and got a couple of our visitors to get up from the front and move to the back and sit down there as if they could be removed from it. Right. And um, that's important. But I promise you that we will not betray your confidence. To stay with it. There's some painful stuff, but, you know, the world is a complicated place. And there's so many lessons that issue out of the Second World War for us that if you stay with it, I promise it won't be be denied. And as I said, too, is that people fall in love in this film. There's really hilarious, (laughs) funny jokes that are told. And a lot of stuff happens uh, back home that is inspiriting and and, um, very noble. And so what war does is it, it brings in its wake a lot of disparate themes. And they're themes, obviously, of patriotism and valor and bravery and um, courage. And all of those things get encrusted with cliches. They're not encrusted in this film. They're, when you see them, they're there because they're accompanied by worry and loss and doubt and um, the anxiety of, of, of whether you're the next bullet's got your name on it or not, and by atrocity and by mistake and by just sheer human brutality. And all of those things come to the fore and sometimes get blurred. Uh, the lines get blurred. So it's the greatest generation, perhaps. It's also the worst generation. Right. Uh, because who would have perpetrated this madness on right. us uh, that would end up in 60 million people dying? And what happens when people go to war isn't pretty. You know, the first Gulf War was to me like the worst war ever because it, it, it gave us the sense you could have a casualty-less war. And it lulled people into that sleep that we'll just let them do it. Now we have a separate military class that suffers its losses apart and alone from the rest of us. You know, I speak around the country and I ask people to raise their hand if they know somebody in Iraq or they are families involved. And rarely is there anybody raise their hand. And if they do, they're, you know, one, maybe two people in an audience of hundreds of hundreds of people. Whereas if this was 1943, every hand would go up. Right. Every hand would go up. Coming up next week will be our second part of my interview with Ken Burns, and he's talking about his film, The War. Here's a snippet from that podcast. Second lieutenant that we interviewed who didn't brush his teeth, didn't change his clothes or take a shower in six months. His average life expectancy on the line, the combat line of of his rank was 14 days. That meant you were either killed or severely wounded. So he goes six months and then he's severely wounded. They take him and they patch him up because they're going to send him to Japan because he's good. He's good at what he's done. He's 19, 20 years old. He's a professional killer. He's learned if he survived that long, he's somebody we got to know. So when that atomic bomb goes, he just goes into his tent and he cries for three days. He's going to live. He's going to go home. He's going to have a life. He's going to be able to marry. He's going to be able to have children. He's going to live to an old age as he has. 